from an MBT forum user, Francesco, uh, being almost a mathematician by training and a software architect by trade, I've always wondered what we really mean by probability. Mathematicians just care about the model. So for them, probabilities are a bunch of numbers adding up to one and going on from there. Statisticians try to come up with and interpret probabilities of real-life events, but there are two schools of thought. Frequentists that inter interpret them in terms of number of times an event occurs versus the total number of times it could have occurred. And Bayes Bayesian, Bayesians, thank you. Bayesians who say that probabilities represent beliefs or information agents, uh, what they have about something happening. For a computer scientist, a sequence of numbers is random if there is no way to come up with an algorithm that predicts the next number given the past ones. Frankly, we use that approach, we use the approach that seems to work best given the task at hand, but it seems to me that there is no common agreement on how to interpret or come up with probabilities. I was wondering if Tom has given some thought to this topic. Well, the reason that there's different approaches is there's different kinds of problems. You know, it's best to create an approach that suits the problem. All approaches don't work equally well on all problems. So that's why you have probability that sometimes looking at it from a, uh, from a viewpoint of frequency that says, uh, here's something that happens sometimes. And, well, what's the probability of it happening? Well, then, like he says, you take all the instances, you look at a 1,000 instances, say, and you see that in 300 of them it happened, then it's 300 divided by a 1,000 is the probability of it happening. Now, the limitation to that, that's what he talked about, the frequency. Uh, there's a limitation to that because it doesn't really logically imply that if you took another 1,000, you'd get another 300, you see? All it tells you is what happened in that particular set of data, that particular measurement. Now, what we do is we say, well, but, you know, our, our sample was a good sample, and we can say that present trends continue, and it'll probably be like that. So we can say that that three, you know, the 300 out of 1,000 is the probability that you get any time, tomorrow, the next day, or out of any sample. Well, that is an assumption, not a fact. Depends on the data, depends on the sample, depends on what you're measuring. So sometimes the frequency method makes good sense, where you have very regular, consistent, homogeneous data, and sometimes it doesn't make good sense because all you end up with is a probability about this piece of data, and it doesn't say anything at all about anything else, which then isn't very useful. So, but it is useful for certain things. The Bayesian approach: you take uh, your information and you let that information tell you. Um, uh, the occurrences of things and what is more likely than other. And that's it's a little different uh, approach. What I would tell him, yes, probability uh, does have different ways of being applied, but if you just want a definition of probability that, that gets all of them, a general definition, it's a way to quantify what is more or less likely. That's what probability is about. It's a numerical way to quantify what's more or less likely. So when we look at, you know, that can be the frequency, that can be Bayesian, you know, it can be uh, anything that helps quantify 
something is more likely to happen or less likely to happen. What are the what's the relative probability between these two things? Which one is more likely to happen? See, that's the uh, that's the i that's the idea. Uh, looking at what's more or less likely to occur, to exist, to happen, whatever. So I I go with the mathematician. She started out the mathematicians just define it as numbers <laughs> that all add up to one. And I'm with the mathematicians. You know, that's kind of the general mathematical uh, approach to uh, probability. And that applies whether it's Bayesian or whether it's, uh, you know, the other approach. Um, frequency. Yes. <laughs> that, that applies to both of those just the same. They both, they both start out with totals and it's how many does this change, you know, within one. Of course, with you do the frequency, you normalize it later to get it up between zero and one as opposed to 300 out of 10,000, you know, you, you, uh, you make that fraction, uh, that's, a, that's a fraction that's less than one. So you, you have to divide by the, by the 3,000. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure exactly why he asked that question unless he's just a mathematician <laughs> that wanted to, to discuss <laughs> that. But uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a formalism. It's a way to quantify things that are more or less likely. And it okay. is, it's an important concept of probability because you have two different ways to approach reality. It's either deterministic, you see, which means you, you have initial conditions that if you follow the, how things relate to each other and you have initial conditions, you can always calculate what's going to happen next. That's determinism. Or you have things that are probable. That's not being determinist. That's saying we don't know that given this situation, that's the result. We say that, well, given the situation, this is the probable result. In other words, there could be multiple results. See the difference? So determinism has one result for one configuration of reality. That's all it allows. Every result is unique. Whereas probability allows a a whole range of different results, all of which are, each of which is more or less likely than the others. So now you have a selection. So when you have a deterministic reality, everything has to be computed, every instance from the very ground up, from the initial conditions and in the situation, all the way up to wherever it is you're making your, your measurement, your calculation. So it is very time consuming, very computation consuming, and it's just not practical for complex problems. So what's com what's pro what is likely that we use for complex problems is we use probability. We don't worry. When we, when we uh, model an airplane flying through the sky or a rocket taking a flight, we don't start with atoms. We don't start with quarks to model that rocket. We just assume, we just do statistics on that. We say, well, you know, probably all the molecules in the, fuselage of that uh, rocket aren't going to just disappear or go someplace else. We'll just say the probability is that they'll all just do what they're supposed to do, and we won't worry about the molecular level there. We only worry about the molecular level when we're actually looking at something molecular. We assume that probability and statistics will work for us when we're not looking at that level. Probability is a necessary thing to describe very complex systems. The deterministic approach just doesn't work. It's not practical. There's many things now that we couldn't even do if you, if you 
parallel processed all the supercomputers on the planet, you still couldn't get the computation done in less, you know, in, in less than a lifetime. A lot of reality is so complex that the deterministic approach is impractical in many cases. So you need to do a probabilistic approach. And sure enough, this very efficient reality that we live in, this virtual reality, is a probability-based reality because that's what works best and that's what's efficient. And because it's a virtual reality, it's got all the detailed information so that it can compute from the ground up if it wants, when it needs to. And what it computes isn't every situation. It computes probability distributions. And after he does it once, it doesn't have to do them anymore. It's just a probability problem after that. So that makes it a more efficient system. Tom, another question from an MBT forum user has to do with um, virtual reality. How did the universe evolve from its starting point and up to the first avatar? I have no trouble with it happening in a computer and that the rule set was decided in advance. My problem is with the enormous amount of probabilities exploding out from the big digital bang without being able to manifest or collapse, or whatever you want to call it, into suns and planets where avatars live. I know we've just touched on some of this. How can a simulation evolve for billions of years with a bunch of new probabilities being made every second? And the next second, a bunch of probability branches out from there into an awful lot of more probabilities. For me, it reminds me of the many worlds theory that Thomas criticized for requiring an unnecessary use of resources. Oh, We've been talking about some of this. Uh, why wait for 13 billion years for the result of your experiment? Can't see any point in that. Do you have a comment on that? Well, this person is, for some reason, assuming that the time that passes in the simulation is, is equal and the same as the time that's passing, you know, in the larger consciousness system. Uh, you can have a simulation that uh, is much, much faster than your... What do we call it? The uh, you know, then the, the clock in the computer room. So we can have a simulation, say, of the way bacteria grow and in, in a certain kind of culture, and that bacteria may take a week to grow to a certain a certain level where it consumes all the all the assistance in the culture. Well, you can do that in a computer, and it may only take a microsecond because it can do things very quickly. So you don't have a one-to-one -one time. So it's not like the simulation had to run for, you know, uh, whatever it was, billion years, however many billion years you mentioned there. I'm trying to remember what the life of the universe is. Probably, what is it, 30 billion or something like that? Anyway, I uh, don't remember. But it, you don't necessarily have a one-to-one -one correspondence in time. Secondly, the system is a computer system. Now, in the many worlds theory, we're talking about a whole reality. Now, and in their minds, the people who have this system, it's not a virtual reality. It's not that there's a whole bunch of virtual realities being created by this many worlds theory. It's a whole physical universe that's being created. See, they're materialists. They're not, they don't see it as from virtual reality. A whole physical universe with all the matter and all the stars and all the you know the people and the suns and the whole physical universe has to be created. Another one with all the various differences in it. That's a little different than doing it in a computer. 
the computers can do things very, very quickly. Now, he shouldn't, he shouldn't imagine that the larger consciousness system is only about as strong and capable as our desktop computers or even our, our uh, big uh, supercomputers. It's probably many billions of billions of times faster and, and better than that. So the fact that it can follow a whole lot of things in a computer very easily is just not a really big deal and has nothing to do at all with something like many worlds. Now you're talking about many calculations and not many worlds, not many physical universes, just many calculations. And many calculations is, you know, well, how fast is your computer? Our computers do many calculations compared to what they did a decade ago. You know, our, our computers uh, do lots and lots of calculations. And we can now parallel process. And now we can take, uh, you know, 100 or two or 300 um, processors and net them together in such a way that we create uh, multiprocessor supercomputers. Well, what if there were hundreds of thousands of those processors or millions of those processors? And what if they were all a billion times faster than anything we can imagine? You see, it's, it's not at all like many worlds. It's just processing. Computers can be very fast and, and take care of all that. But it's not necessarily as much as, you, as, as you're thinking. It's not that every possibility is, is um, computed. And the way it works is if there is a choice that needs to be made, if there's a measurement to make, if you will, if there's something to happen, you look at all the possibilities and the probability of each of those possibilities, then you take a random draw out of that distribution, and that's what happens. You don't have to do them all. It's not like you have to compute every possibility. You take that random draw from that distribution, and that's the result. Okay, now, from now on, life has to progress with that as the result. So that's a, that's, a, that's a constraint. See, the next time somebody asks a question, it's a little different probability distribution because now we have that, that as a result has to be figured into this reality we're doing. So it's not that you pursue every possible possibility. It's just you have all these possibilities and every measurement, every choice Every decision is made by a random draw from the probability distribution of the possibilities. So some, some things are more or less likely. The ones that are more likely have higher probability. Well, those are the ones that are more likely to be actualized. The ones that are less likely, and there's probably millions of things that are less likely, well, those just don't get actualized. Then you go on to the next. So that's what evolution means, is that the next thing you do is based on where you just were. You take the present, and then evolution is a, is a set of choices, a set of steps from that present. You see to the next step, and then the next step after that in evolution has to be based on the last step. So it's not like do every possibility. It's you actualize those probabilities in a virtual reality that uh, evolve. So our virtual reality evolved to be the way it is, the universe that we see. That's our virtual reality. And it maybe could have evolved a million other different ways, but those didn't have to be computed. This is the one that evolved. So only this had to be computed. So it's not quite as uh, wasteful even in computation. And computation isn't wasteful at all compared to actually creating physical universes if you're a, if you're a materialist. So that uh, 
So there's not really any any uh, comparison there. Now, in the virtual probability, uh, I mean, in the probability uh, databases, yes, all the possibilities and their probabilities are accounted for. Okay? And it, it has to account for all those, but it doesn't have to compute out what all those various things, you know, might lead to. It just has to say, here are the possibilities. Doesn't necessarily have to actualize them. It only actualizes the one that that uh, gets drawn out of that that random draw. You see, so there's a lot of things undone in a probabilistic reality that are never uh, a lot of rabbit holes that are never gone down. Same way with this no man's sky. You know, there's a lots of possibilities that'll uh, you know never be uh, actualized. Nobody will ever trigger those potentialities. They're just potential. So there's a lot of potential reality out there that will never be actualized into an actual virtual reality. All right. Um, Torsten, if you're ready to ask your question, please go ahead. In old and uh, more recent literature, we often find the trio of body, spirit, and soul. Sometimes spirit is replaced by mind. While I have no problem with the term body, and suspect that soul is to a far extent synonymous with consciousness in MBT tech terminology, I wonder what the respective terms for spirit and mind are in MBT terminology. Okay, um, spirit and mind, um, well, well, we can kind of do soul in there too. The reason that we have these various words and they're all related to each other, is because we are materialists and now we separate things like body and mind. We separate things like body and soul and, and uh, we, we don't separate things like body and consciousness because we think the consciousness is somehow you know, materially based. So we have, we, we talk about spirit as a more general thing, like uh, the spirit world we talk about a spirit, then that's pretty much saying the same thing as a soul. It's a non-physical entity, I guess, is the description that would, it's both the spirit and the soul. And the spirit world would be the world of non-physical entities. And uh, so let's see, which one we're missing is his mind. Where does mind come in there? Well, mind is the cognitive function of consciousness, right? That's what we talk about in mind, our ability to think, to make choices. That's what consciousness does. So a, a soul has a mind, if you will. It's the cognitive ability of that soul or a spirit, the cognitive ability of that spirit. Or if we think of ourselves as a body, then it's the cognitive ability of that body. So mind is just a... Is a matter of cognition. It's a it's a function, cognitive function. And though I have read things that try to separate them all and give them all very different uh, definitions, I kind of say they're all just related. It's more of a semantical kind of thing about you know the attributes you give to each. Um, mind is 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 uh, our thinking process. Non physical beings. We are a non-physical being. We consciousness are non-physical beings. And our body is just a virtual body, ones and zeros. So 
You know, we are a soul. We are a spirit. We are a mind. And all of that is just terminology that talks about a non-physical entity that can think. Whether you call that, you know, mind or spirit or soul probably really doesn't make much difference. It's just different ways the words are used. I don't think anybody would talk about the soul world like they talk about the spiritual world. It's just a different way we use the, use the language. So they're all interrelated, and mainly we have so many words is because we're confused about what it all means. We're materialists, and we have to have the physical thing and the non-physical thing. So that you have a body, then if you have something that's non-physical, then it's, it's got to be a soul. So we have to make up a new word for it because it's not like us because we're physical. So we make a new, a new word for it, and then spirit is, is kind of a more general term rather than Unless you put a, an article in front of it like a spirit or the spirit, then it's a, a non-physical entity. And a soul is also a, an individual's, a, a, a non-physical entity. I don't see a lot of difference in a more of the history of the language and how the words came together. And once you have a bigger picture of how reality works, then there's not a lot of difference. Okay. Um, perhaps I can add a, a, a little hint why I'm asking this question. Um, I read a book uh, by uh, Vada Hasselmann who channels an entity which calls itself the source. Uh, it's a transcendental entity. And this entity um, published via Vada Hasselmann a lot of details about soul and the life of souls and the, the, the cycle of uh, reincarnation and so. But when this entity was asked, what is um, the difference between soul and spirit, this entity answered, we are very competent on soul issues and there is a oneness of soul uh, as a higher being, but this is only one of two parts of this being. There is also a part which is the spiritual oneness, and we don't have any expertise about that, and so we don't answer this question. Well, I suspect that um, there wasn't an answer to the question because there's really just two different words for the same thing. And I don't know. He would have had to go into some kind of differentiation between soul and spirit, which is where I thought you were going to go with that. I, you surprised me at the end by saying, that, you know, I don't answer the question. Again, I'd say that's more semantics. I don't think there's anything fundamental involved there in that, in that, uh, in that uh, line doesn't want to talk about the differences because I think it's just not profitable. There really isn't any distinguishable differences. He's talking about soul, and, and in his discussion of soul, he must be talking about things like uh, quality and, you know, right and wrong, morality, all this sort of thing. Is, you know, he has to be talking about that. Well, if you talk about that, then is that not the core ideas of spirituality? You know, about what's right and what's wrong and what's spiritual and what's not and what's, you know, evolved and de-evolved and so on. So I think it's very similar. And asked to talk a difference, they probably just didn't know what to say. And it kind of came out that way. 
because the the um, you know the, the the medium who's getting the information can only express the information in terms of his own, right? I mean, he he gets the data stream, but he has to interpret that data stream in his own his own understanding, his own uh, um, uh, what should I call it? Uh, experience his own database that, that defines himself, all his experience, all his knowledge, all his fears, all his beliefs, all of that is how he interprets that data. And then people who are really good at it are pretty good at getting themselves out of the way, you know, interpreting it uh, uh, pretty much one-to-one. -one. But still, it's if, if, if they tell him a concept that he doesn't have any understanding of, then he can't. He can he can guess you know and he can do his best bet you know his best guess at, at uh, a good pattern match but he can't really explain it if he doesn't have the thoughts and the ideas in his mind to do it so it's not just that this other being is taking over his vocal cords it also is constrained by his knowledge and his experience so that's that uh, is the way that works so often you'll have odd things that come out. Uh, I know with uh, Seth and Jane Roberts, it was like that. You know, some odd things would come out because Jane just didn't get what he was saying, and she wasn't able to quite put it together. She gave it her best shot, and it didn't quite, you know, it didn't quite come out right. And that happens. So you have to not expect uh, mediums to be, you know, 100% about the way they transcribe. The good ones you know, maybe can approximate that. Maybe they're 90, you know, or 95, but there's some things that are uh, difficult for them to explain and put into words. So when you get odd things like that from a medium, often it's just because there's a, um, some, they get to something that doesn't translate well for them. And that's a good way to do it. I think the, a very honest answer from an honest medium is we don't want to talk about that because it's a it's a place where there really wasn't any value to go because there really wasn't any value in it anyway in the question. Okay. Thank you. Oliver, if you'd like to ask your question. Okay. Um, yeah, my question relates uh, to boredom and maybe as a little uh, backstory why I'm asking it. Uh, when I was a child, I cannot recall ever being bored. It was something that uh, started uh, when I became a teenager. And then uh, about uh, 10 years ago, suddenly this whole boredom experience disappeared from one day to the other and has never come back since. But I've kind of thought a little about boredom. And um, what I've also noticed um, is, at least from what I perceive, is that uh, there's a lot more boredom within teenagers nowadays. And... Um, that relates to my question, and uh, it is, uh, can you speak about your insights into boredom, how it relates to the development of consciousness, and uh, what implications does widespread boredom at an age where the mind should be engaged have on society in general? Okay, boredom, I think, particularly among teenagers, and you're right, that's a very common feeling among teenagers. Um, has to do it, it's typically it's, it typically exists in transition ages where you are between 
between things. You don't really know enough to understand your world and your reality to a point where you can engage it very successfully or very um, uh, effectively. So without, without that, when you're kind of a new, new person in a new place, you'd say, well, you couldn't be very bored because there's so much you don't know. But if you don't, if you can't realize that you don't know, in other words, you're in a new place, but you don't really realize you're in a new place. You don't realize there's a lot of new things to do. Then you have a lot of things you just don't understand. You don't know how to connect to them. You don't know how they're relevant to you. It just don't seem to be that important to where you are because you are kind of a limited person. Then you end up with boredom. And I think a lot of teenagers are like that. They don't have a very big picture. Uh, their picture has more to do with, uh, with having fun because that's the way it was when they were children. There was only one thing to do, and that was to play and have fun. And now they're growing up, and they're supposed to make this transition from it's all about having fun to a world that expects a lot more of them than just to have fun. They don't know how to do that or approach it or whatever. And uh, they are bored, not because there isn't anything in the world for them to grab hold of, but because they just don't know how to grab hold of it. They don't know what to do with it. So they kind of leave it alone and watch TV or play a video game or something because they, it's this growing up, grabbing hold of all that responsibility and, and the rest of it is just, kind of a, a, a very new and difficult thing for them to do. So I think a lot of their boredom is they, is they, uh, they, they have reach, and they're reaching out to see different kinds of things, but they don't really have the grasp to grasp those things that they're reaching out to and, and uh, interact with them in a, in a real meaningful way. So that causes a sense of, I don't know what to do. I can't go there and do that because that doesn't feel right, and I don't want to go back and be a child and you know go play. That doesn't feel right. You know, nothing really feels right, and that just turns into being bored. And uh, they get over that after a while because life has a way of creeping up and, and uh, getting you involved. So I think that's what that comes from. I, I think when you got to the point where you weren't bored anymore, it's because you were engaged. You were engaged in all kinds of things, and you, you saw where you fit connections you had to make and responsibilities that you had, you know, all the stuff now that you can deal with. And when you're an adult enough that you can actually grasp it and interact with it, you're no barred. Then you have the opposite problem. Now you're overwhelmed. <laughs> you're, you've, that's the opposite of boredom is, is being overwhelmed. I have all these things, that all these balls in the air that you're juggling all the time, and you have to keep them all in the air, and you can't drop any of them. And uh, you get overwhelmed with so much to do, and that's because you're so connected to so many things that uh, it gets overwhelming. So I think that's kind of the stages that you're talking about. And yes, boredom is a, it's a, in a way it's kind of, you, you look at the kids and you see that they, they seem to be wasting time. You know, they don't know what to do. They're, they're bored, yet you give them a suggestion. Well, if you're bored, why don't you go get a good book and read it? Nah, I don't want to do that. Well, why don't you, uh, you know, do this or do that? Nah, you know, I don't want to do that. That's because they're not really yet ready to grasp and engage in those things. You know, they're somewhere halfway between adult and a child, and they don't really fit into either world. And that's why they're, they're bored, because they just can't 
grasp the the next step of what to do. They know it's not reading the book. They know it's not this other stuff. Somehow they have to change to encompass this this new reality, a new set of responsibilities that's expected of them, and uh, they just don't know how to do that. So they what they tell you is that they're bored. You might even say they're overwhelmed in a way too that they, they've got you know they just don't know what they're doing. When you're really overwhelmed, you're overwhelmed and you know it. I guess when you're overwhelmed and you don't know it, you say you're bored. <laughs> I don't know. Does that uh, does that answer your your question? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I saw Justin smiling a lot. I think uh, yeah, who gets in that age, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he probably hears that a lot. And uh, yeah, it's really hard to get a, a teenager to not be bored. You know, they're bored with anything you want to do is boring. You know, and anything they want to do is usually not allowed. <laughs> All right, Tom. To. <laughs> All right, Tom. The next question comes from the MBT forum user, Francesco. Um, when I was a child, I used to be able to shift to other realities very easily a few minutes after closing my eyes. Then something happened and I was no longer able to. I remember telling my mom that something was wrong because when I closed my eyes, I saw only black. And she answered, why? What do you think you should see? With a quizzical look. And I understood then I should keep my mouth shut. It was not an instantaneous thing. I remember it took a few days to lose the ability. Now I am still unable to project at will. There is some sort of fear that comes in when I try to consciously shift to another reality. It's something I don't understand because when I find myself conscious in other realities by chance, without having planned it, I feel fine, without fears, at least in most situations. I feel I've been blocked because otherwise I would have used that as an escape hatch from some of the hardships I've been through. Even though I think I'm now past them and I would like to gain the ability back, I still find it difficult. Do you have any advice for him? Yes. Part of what, when he lost that ability as a he was getting to be an older child. My guess is he was probably about seven, six, seven, eight in that in that uh, neighborhood when he had that, that you know, and it starts to go away. And what happens? That's about the age where we learn to be left brain. We learn to be rational. We learn to put things in order. We learn to, uh, I don't know, live in a rational world, if you will, live in a in a uh, in a, in a world that uh, is physical, materialistic, and makes sense to us. And one of the things you know that that uh, children go through is, is when they're very young, they still live in a magical world, and in a magical world, all kinds of things are are able to happen. All sorts of things. So some non-physical being has a conversation with you. What's wrong with that? You know, doesn't everybody do that? That seems like a normal experience. And for you to trip around in other reality frames and so on, that seems like a normal experience. You've got one foot in the kind of the non-physical and one foot in the physical. You're kind of making that transition as you're two and three and four years old. But then we get into first grade and they start to teach us to read. When you when you read, you have to memorize meanings for words and symbols and put those together and sounds. And now it's all about putting things in the right order and getting all the appropriate attributes to things. 
and memorizing things. And we go from the holistic sense of, of, of something just happening and being that we can connect to, to something that is structured and rational. So we develop that rational part of us about the time we learn how to read. Now, some children, you know, resist the reading thing more than others. You know, some start reading at four or five or six and, and others start reading, you know, in seven or eight or nine because they're just not interested. They don't like it. They're still happier in a holistic world that just happens and not so much in a button down world that is sequence, you know, has a sequence of symbols and things to be interpreted and, and becomes a more of a, uh, of a linear logical world well what happens is eventually we give up our our one foot in the in the non-physical and one foot in the physical and we get both feet in the physical and if we actually say things like where did all the pictures go you know people look at us like there's something wrong with us or if we tell our friends about uh, you know our our uh, our non-physical friends then they make fun of us so very quickly, we put all that aside because it's unacceptable in the physical world. In the world of eight, nine, and 10-year-olds, that'll just get you grief if you mention it, you know, usually even, even to your parents or, or friends. So you quickly put that aside. So now what you find is that you committed yourself to this physical, logical world, and you've taken your foot out of that, uh, that uh, holistic you know the non-physical and physical all being kind of part of a larger of a larger uh, reality. You've, you've kind of given that up. Now it's really hard to do that because as you try to interact with those those non-physical friends you used to have, you try to go visit those other realities that you used to visit. There's a part of your mind that's telling you that that's nonsense, that that's irrational that grown-ups don't do that, you know, that sane people don't do that. And these experiences are likely to be imaginary. And if they're imaginary and then you let them go and they build, and pretty soon you're going to be in la-la land and walking down the path to, you know, a, a trip to the psychiatrist's office to talk about uh, your non-physical friends. So we have this inhibition about going there because our society, you know, doesn't, deal with it well, doesn't accept it, doesn't tolerate with it. And if you do those things, then you do them on your own and you keep it to yourself. And most people have a sense of that, that same thing in their, in their culture has given them this sense that that's a, that's a risky path to go down. How can you tell whether that's real or you're just imagining it? That's a high risk. You don't want to walk in, you know, you don't want to, to uh, lose your, uh, your, um, rationality by dealing with these irrational things now irrational means illogical illogical means they don't follow from our physical world so that's the way we think of it and now you can't get there oh you just wake up there naturally fine no problem hey i'm in the you know, i'm out of body or i'm doing a lucid dream nifty and you can deal with that because you didn't have to make the transition it just happened when you make the transition you have a fear of being trapped, well, not being trapped, but walking down the path into la-la land, taking it seriously when maybe it's, you're just making it up. 
And it's that fear that keeps you from ever getting there. So that's probably what he's what he's running into. And until he lets that fear go to where he can just say, well, I'm going to just put myself out there and see what happens. And I'll just accept whatever happens is what happens. It's an experience. And I don't care whether it's real experience. Matter of fact, what does real mean? You know, what makes an experience real? And I'll let that go and I'll just say, it's an experience. And anything that's an experience is something I can learn from. That's what learning is. It's experience and choice making. And if I'm making choices and having experience, then it's part of my experience. I can learn from it and I'll just see where it takes me. So if you have that kind of openness, then you won't have much of a problem. But most of us don't have that kind of openness because our culture kind of stomps that out of us once we uh, probably get about seven, eight, nine, ten as we as we get older. And certainly by the time you're 12 or 13 or 14, that's gone. It's just not part of your acceptable reality. That's really where the fear is. And then, of course, we read stuff. We read these books and, you know, there's boogeymen that live in the non-physical and they'll you know, they'll they'll mug you if you go there and don't know what you're doing. And, of course, you know you don't know what you're doing, so you're kind of afraid to go there. So there's those kinds of fears as, as well that get in the way. So that's the problem that most people have. And they don't see these fears rationally. It's not that they rationally in their mind are thinking, oh, I don't want to go there because some monster might get me. They don't think that. They just have this uneasy feeling about maybe it's not such a good thing to do. See, so these fears are at a level that's not in your intellect. You just get these out of the culture. They're at your being level, and they'll get in the way, and you probably don't even know that they're there. They're just part of being in, in this culture. Now, if you were in a culture where taking trips in the non-physical was everybody does it, you know, and, and, in, and instead of uh, the idea about I, I, I just get blackness now, They'd say, oh, my, that's a problem. Everybody gets pictures. I don't know why you're getting black. You see, then the pictures would soon return because now that would be an acceptable thing to do. But we don't live in that kind of a culture. And there are some cultures like that that are very uh, open to non-physical things. And in those cultures, I think you find that most people don't have any difficulty experiencing those non-physical things. So it's a cultural problem, pretty much. It's a fear problem. Okay, um, we'd like to give Sveta a little bit of time to get her microphone working if she's listening in now and ask her questions. So if you'd like to do that, Sveta, while you're doing that, Ingeborg has a question for us, for Tom. Yes, love. we talked a lot about virtual reality today and also on other fireside chats. And... Now I'm I'm a little bit confused about the the you know um, the, how the being level and the virtual reality are working together or whether they are separate. So so you break down everything to a virtual reality, and you also said that we create data. So we from a being level maybe create data. Who creates the data? And how would you describe the being level in comparison to virtual reality? So this is, I'm a little bit confused on this um, issue. Uh, and uh, so 
is the being level part of virtual reality or is it separate? And uh, if so, is virtual reality immortal? As maybe we are, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, um, if the uh, being level is separate from virtual reality, what is the purpose? With, what is our purpose on the uh, on the being level? Do you have any idea on that? Okay, you're confusing two things, uh, Ingeborg. On the virtual reality is where we gain experience. Okay, we are consciousness. The virtual reality is a is a uh, is a game that we log into, where we get to make choices and we we gain experience there. That's what our choice making does. So virtual reality is just a, a way of giving us experience where we make choices and get feedback. That's what it does. Now, we as consciousness work on various levels. One of the levels we work on is our intellectual level and the other is a being level. Now, our intellectual level is, for most people, it's about ego. And its ego is, is awareness and the service of fear. And that's mainly, for most people, what the intellect is, is, is doing. But that's not really the only function of the cognitive. You know, you have a cognitive level. Your being level is who you are at the core of yourself. Who you know, who is Ingeborg at that, at that deep core, you know, what are, what and who are you? All your fears, you know, all your knowledge, all your experiences, all of that sums up together that you at the being level. It's not who you think you are, who you'd like to be. That would be an intellectual thing. It's not you acting in a role. It's just who you are, fundamental level. That's your being level. So now both of those are attributes of consciousness. Consciousness can function at a being level, or it can function at just an intellectual level. Now, it's, it gets a little confusing because at the being level, doesn't mean that you can't think. You know, when we make this distinction, the being level also has a cognitive function. That's awareness in the service of love, awareness in the service of, of, uh, of caring. That's at the being level. Also at the being level can be fear and can be ego because that can be part of you at your being, right? So that's, it's all in there at the being level. So being level isn't just love, but love is a part of it. And it isn't just ego because ego is a part of it. It's all of you. Your intellectual level mostly is involved in expressing your fear because most of us are fear-based. Most of us are ego-based. So 90% of our, of our things we say and do are pushed by our, our fears and our egos. Now, I'm just talking about the average person, talking about people under the fat part of the curve. So that's, you know, so the, the intellectual level and being level are, are two ways that a consciousness can express itself. It can express itself through acting or through being. And we call the intellectual level often the acting one, although both actually have a cognitive level. A little confusing, but it has nothing to do really with virtual reality. Those are attributes of consciousness. Virtual reality 
is a game that the consciousness plays in in order to get experience making choices and and grow to learn how to make better quality choices. So that's all the virtual reality is. They're two completely different different things. The being level is a little, you know, the being level and intellectual are just a little confusing because of the way you can have cognition at both levels. Most of us, our cognition is predominantly at the fear and ego level, and that's what I end up calling the intellectual level because that's typically what's in people's intellects. But you can also have cognition or an intellect, if you will, that's in the service of love, and that's also a part of your being level. And your being level is everything. It's the fear, it's the ego, it's the love, it's the caring. It's just who you are as opposed to who you think you are or to who you'd like to be.